Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Thank you for joining us in person and online uh, for our worship service today. If you'll grab your Bible and find Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be starting with verse 1. Uh, we are now halfway through the letter of Philippians, and today we're starting the second half. There are four chapters in Philippians, and so um, it's a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul from prison to Christians living in the ancient Roman city of Philippi. And I want to encourage you and challenge all of you as we preach through the last half of the letter. When we do sermons, we like to um, dig into small chunks of scripture and pull out all of the treasure that's there. Um, But when Paul originally wrote the letter of Philippians, it was intended to be read like a letter. And you can imagine getting a Christmas letter from a family member or a friend and only reading it one paragraph at a time over like 10 weeks. Well, nobody does that, right? We, we read the whole letter. So I want to challenge you, encourage you to, as over the next few weeks, as we preach through the second half of Philippians, I would encourage you to read the whole letter all in one sitting. It takes about 10 minutes. Um, and you could do that, you know, two or three times a week. Uh, even read it out loud, read it to somebody, uh, have somebody read it out loud to you. Just try to connect with the way the original uh, Christians would have heard the letter uh, read to them. And as we preach through the second half of the letter, if we're reading through the first half and the whole thing together as a, we'll see the big picture, that'll help us connect the second half with the first half as we're preaching through. Um, but we'll be starting on Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 today. And while you're finding that, Have you ever noticed how there are some things that never grow old? You know, uh, like watching It's a Wonderful Life at Christmas time. I could watch that movie every year. It never grows old. Or maybe you're a Charlie Brown Christmas kind of person and you love to watch Charlie Brown's Christmas every year. Um, My grandpa Bob had about mm, five or six jokes and he would tell the same jokes over and over and over and they were funny every time. Uh, They never got old. Right? My kids never get tired of hearing the funny things that they said when they were toddlers. They're always like, Dad, tell me, t- what did we say? Mom, what did I say? You know, and, and they, they told them a hundred times, but they, they never get tired of it. Or uh, Corinne's lasagna. Uh, I love lasagna. Corinne's lasagna is my favorite lasagna. She could make it every week. I could eat it every day. I don't think I would ever, it would ever get old. Corinne, are you taking notes? <laughs> By the way, I'm just, <laughs> I'm I'm kidding. Some things just never get old. And in halfway through his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul talks about something that never gets old, even though they had already heard it before. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. So he says, I'm, I'm telling you to rejoice in the Lord and I'm going to tell you why, where that joy comes from and what is coming next in the next few verses is nothing new. You've heard it before, but it's no trouble for me to remind you again. I'm going to start a new section of the letter with an old reminder that the Philippians had heard the next section of Paul's letter probably a hundred times Philippians chapter 3 is one of the most important foundational chapters in all of the New Testament to understanding what Christianity actually is. To understanding what it actually means to be a Christian. These next few verses 
are some of the most important words that have ever been written in human history in helping us understand what God's purpose and plan is for all of us, collectively and individually, for you and for me. So Paul's writing this. No doubt the Philippians had already heard him preach this message over and over and over again, and he says, yes, I'm going to step up on the soapbox again and write the same things over to you, and it's no trouble for me. It's a safeguard for you because no matter how many times we hear this message, our tendency is to forget it. We know it. It becomes so familiar that we, we tend to forget it. And Paul says, it's so foundational. In fact, it is the source of our joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul has talked all through Philippians about rejoicing. He says, I'm, I rejoice when I pray for you. All my prayers are full of joy because I know that God who started something in you is going to finish what he started. I'm sitting here in prison and I'm writing these words rejoicing because I'm so excited about my suffering advancing the gospel. And he says, you know, even if you are called to suffer, you should rejoice. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, like the song we just sang. He's like, all these things, I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. And he says it again here, rejoice in the Lord. Where does the source of our joy come from? That's the question. Where does true joy come from? It comes from this reminder that Paul sent to the Philippians and that we have preserved by the Holy Spirit for us today. There are three things in uh, these next few verses that are the source of our true joy. And Paul's going to talk about our true assurance. He's going to talk about our true asset. And he's going to talk about our true aim our true assurance, our true asset, and our true aim. Um, And so let's look at our true assurance. True joy comes from our true assurance. That is the Holy Spirit. Nothing else matters. The Holy Spirit is our true assurance. Look at what Paul wrote in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. What is Paul talking about here, and why is he insulting people in his letter? You have to understand a little bit of the context of what was going on. There was a group of Jewish Christians They had converted to Christianity, they worshipped Jesus as the Messiah, and yet they were ethnically Jewish, and they were traveling around to Paul's churches that he had planted, most of which were not Jewish churches. They were Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians. So these Jewish Christians were traveling around... And they were going to Paul's churches that he had planted. And because they were mostly not Jewish Christians there, the Jewish Christians were saying, you're not really God's chosen people. You don't really belong to the family of God because you're not circumcised. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a mark that you belonged to the people of Israel. That you were one of God's chosen people. You were circumcised. That was a mark. That was an identity marker. And since most of Paul's converts were Gentiles, not Jews, and they hadn't been circumcised, all the Jewish Christians, not all, this group of Jewish Christians was going around to his churches and saying, you know what? If you really want to know that you belong to Christ, it's great that you have faith in Jesus. That's great. But you know what? If you really want to be part of God's family, here's what you need to do. You need to get circumcised. Because you're not, really, you're not really in, we're in, 
we're Jews, we're God's chosen people, we've been circumcised, and they called themselves the circumcision. You know, and, and so uh, it's kind of like, are you uh, the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, or the circumcision party? Well, uh, you don't see that on many polls, <laughs> right? I don't re- recommend getting a t-shirt that says, hi, I'm of the circumcision. Uh, that's not culturally acceptable in our society anymore. But this is what was happening. And so this group calling themselves the circumcision was telling the Gentile Christians, you're not really in unless you follow our rules and add them to your faith in Christ. Well, Paul is furious. He is furious. And so he responds strongly and with much irony. He says, beware of the dogs. Now, this isn't an insult per se, Dog was the term that the Jews would use to describe Gentiles. And the, the picture that they, were, that they were painting was this. In God's family, the Jews, God's chosen people, we're the children. We're God's children. And everybody else in God's household are the dogs. You know, we're the ones that have a seat at God's table. We're God's chosen people. We're his children. And everybody, all the non-Jews, they're, they're the dogs that are like scrapping around on the floor looking for crumbs, right? That was their terminology. So Paul is, is writing and he's saying, look, these people who are walking around claiming to be the true children of God, they're not the children. They are the dogs, They're the ones on the outside looking in. They think that they're so holy and righteous because they're keeping the law of circumcision. They're actually evil workers. Beware of them. They are so proud of their circumcision, they've named themselves the circumcision. Paul says, no, they're the mutilators of the flesh. Their cutting has no spiritual value at all because they are putting confidence in that rather than in Christ. And so what he says is these these people who are the ones claiming themselves to be the chosen special people are revealing by their circumcision and their dependence on it that they don't understand the gospel of Christ at all. They're actually revealing themselves to be on the outside, although they're claiming to be on the inside. That's the point he's making. They're not the true people of God. Their assurance is an external assurance. And Paul says in verse 3, he says, no, we are the true people of God. He says, we are the circumcision. How do you know the true people of God? It's the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exult in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. See, the, the marker of a true Christian, the marker of somebody who is actually uh, a believer in Christ, the true people of God. How do you know? Paul says, here's a tip. It's not necessarily the most religious person in the room. It's not necessarily the people who are really, really good at keeping all the rules. That doesn't necessarily show you who is a true child of God. It's not necessarily the people that have the biggest, thickest, heaviest study Bibles with all the notes and the marks and the highlights and everything like that. It's not necessarily the people who can argue theology all day long. It's not necessarily the people who have hundreds of Bible verses memorized. All these things are great, but these don't show you who is the real people of God. The real people of God are not marked on the outside with a physical mark like circumcision. The real people of God are marked on the inside with a spiritual mark by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul taught in all of his churches. In Romans chapter 2 verse 28, he said, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. But someone is a Jew. Someone is a chosen child of God. Someone is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. This is the point that he's making. The Spirit is the mark. In Ephesians 1.13, he says, When you believed in Christ, you were marked, not externally, not outwardly, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. God stamped his image in you through his Spirit on your heart. Back in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 16, he said, The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. How do you know that your faith is genuine? How do you know that you have enough faith to be accepted by God? How do you know that God actually loves you? That the prayer you prayed to give your life to Christ had any uh, merit or value or was effective? How do you know that? Well, it's not any external outside mark. It is the presence of God's Holy Spirit in you. He has marked you. He has sealed you. And he testifies, he bears witness in your heart that you belong to Jesus. The Spirit is our true assurance. When Americans are asked, will you go to heaven when you die? The three most common answers given are, I don't know, I hope so, and I think so. Will you go to heaven when you die? That question is basically, how do you know you've been accepted by God? Does God accept you? I don't know, I hope so, and I think so. Three most common answers. Now, what that tells us is that the vast majority of Americans, including Christians, have no assurance that God has accepted them. When you have the Holy Spirit, you have assurance that God has accepted you. You're free. You don't have to create anything. You don't have to do anything special to make God love you. You have the Holy Spirit. How do you know God's accepted you? The Holy Spirit's in you. God's not going to put his spirit in you if he doesn't love you and accept you. He is your assurance. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have to create some other way of being acceptable to God. How do you know you're acceptable to God if you don't have the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, I don't know. Do I read my Bible enough? I don't know. Do I follow the rules enough? I don't know. They were doing, oh, I've been circumcised. Maybe that makes me acceptable to God, right? You have to come up with your own religious resume to be acceptable to God because you don't have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. The, The thing is, how good is good enough? If you need to be good enough to be acceptable to God, how good is good enough? Uh, Maybe it's I should have a quiet time uh, every day, but you know that's really hard, so maybe I should have a quiet time three days a week for 15 minutes. Well, that means the majority of the week I'm not spending time with God, and and, you know, 15 minutes out of 24 hours in a day really isn't that much time. Is God going to be pleased with that? Uh, Maybe uh, maybe I should have a 30-minute quiet time, but that still means for 23 and a half hours a day I'm not doing anything for God. Maybe I should have an hour quiet time. Maybe it should be four days a week. You know what? Uh, uh, That person over there, I bet they only spend like 15 or 20 minutes in their quiet time. At least I'm better than them. Like if God has to choose one of us, he'll probably choose me because I have better quiet time, right? Like this this is how it goes. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You have no assurance. And God looks at us and and he sees that and he says, stop. 
Stop, stop, stop. Stop beating yourself up because you think you're not good enough. Stop beating yourself up because you're not doing as much as somebody else. You have the Holy Spirit. You are loved. You are valued. God delights in you. He delights to pour his love into your life. He says, hey, all that stuff, the quiet time, that's, all that's good stuff, but that doesn't make you acceptable to God. Our true assurance is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else matters. So stop beating yourself up and thank God for loving you and accepting you in Christ. The second thing that Paul says is our source of joy. True joy comes from uh, true assurance, the Holy Spirit. The second thing is that true joy comes from our true asset, only Jesus. Everything else is a liability. That's what Paul's talking about. When he picks up in verse 4, he's been talking about reliance on human credentials, and he says, though mine too, my credentials are significant. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more, Paul says. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul's saying, you know what? You don't get any more Jewish than me. I'm the perfect example. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm I'm ethnically uh, an Israelite. I'm from the tribe that gave Israel their first king, the tribe of Benjamin. If you look up Hebrew in the dictionary, my picture's gonna be there. Paul is the quintessential Jewish man. He says, I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. No one was more strict and strident in keeping the law than me. He says, in my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. Paul wasn't just zealous for keeping the rules. He was also zealous for pleasing God. He said, I was so passionate about trying to please God, I was even willing to kill and arrest uh, Christians because I thought God hated them. So in my zealous desire to do what I thought God wanted me to do, I was persecuting Christians. No one's more zealous than me. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless, he says. All these things, Paul says, you know what? If you want to put confidence in the flesh, if you want to trust in your human credentials, no one has more of those credentials than I do. But then he says in verse 7, and we should all underline this verse in our Bibles, he says, these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. He's using financial investment terms. All the things in life that I once considered assets that advanced my standing in society and in the church and with God, I now consider as liabilities. That's not just a loss. If I lose $100, I lost $100. A liability is an ongoing thing. Your mortgage is a liability until you pay it off, right? So Paul says it's not just that all of those credentials are ineffective at gaining acceptance with God. They're actually ongoing liabilities because our tendency is to look back on what we're doing and think that what we're doing somehow makes us special, especially if I can point out how I'm doing more than you then I'm more special than you. And Paul says, no matter how long you've been following Christ and no matter who you are, even the great apostle Paul, that's a liability. And we have to remember our true asset is only Jesus. Everything else is a liability. He even goes beyond that. In verse eight, he says, more than that, I now regard 
all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All things. Paul wasn't just religiously successful. He was a successful businessman. He was very well educated. He was a Roman citizen, even though he was a Jew. He had uh, all kinds of success in the world, and he said all of that, including all of that secular stuff and all of that religious stuff, all of that is a liability compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ. (laughs) Now, we don't see this translated into English very well, but the word dung is actually a Greek explicative. (laughs) And we clean it up a little bit with our English translation. Paul is writing in shock value. He's saying, you know, all that stuff that you consider success, all that stuff that I used to consider success that made me great, it's nothing but a steaming pile of stuff. You can imagine any Philippians that were sleeping When Epaphroditus read that part of the letter, we're like, what? You said what in church? (laughs) And Paul said, all that stuff is just crap. I don't mean that in a vulgar way. I'm trying to be true to the text. He actually said it's stronger than that, and I won't do that here. But he's saying, none of that means anything if I don't have Jesus. He was probably recalling the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah used uh, shock value a lot in his prophetic ministry. And he said something very similar in Isaiah 64, 6. He said this, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, in the English translation, it's very cleaned up because what filthy rags actually means is used menstrual cloths. So the picture that Isaiah is painting is this. You look, you come and stand before God and you've got this box of all your righteous acts and you say, hey God, I'm going to give you this as a gift and you're going to be so excited with it and God opens it up and it's a bunch of bloody things. <laughs> yeah, boy, isn't that a great present to give to God? Shock value, right? And Paul, a little while later after Isaiah, uses the same shock value. He's like, look, You can come to God one of two ways. You can come on your resume or you could come on Jesus' resume. And let's be honest, Jesus' resume makes yours look like crap. That's what he's saying. All these things, all the religion in the world is meaningless without Christ. It means nothing. It is worthless unless it is in Christ. And that's what he goes on to say. Verse uh, nine, he says, uh, I, I want to gain Christ in verse nine and be found in him, not because I have my own righteousness derived from the law, that's just a bunch of dung, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, a righteousness from God that is in fact based on Christ's faithfulness. What he's saying is the only righteousness, the only holiness, the only goodness that is of any value is the goodness that comes from God. It is the goodness that is based on Christ's performance, not ours. 
It is the goodness that comes to us through Jesus from God the Father. And the reason why is because Christ's righteousness changes who we are on the inside. All our righteousness is external. But Christ comes in and changes who we are on the inside. I've been hanging out with the junior high students on Wednesday nights. Um, and it's, they're a fun group. Uh, by the way, it's, it's uh, pretty interesting. But the, a couple weeks ago, we, did, um, we made caramel apples. And I had a caramel apple eating contest with the junior high kids. And so I had two caramel apples. And I said, okay, whoever gets through, eats their caramel apple first gets a two-pound bag of Skittles as a present. Uh, so this is junior high ministry, caramel apples and Skittles, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, Gabe's raising his hand. Gabe, uh, what Gabe didn't know, he was one of our contestants. What he didn't know is that his caramel apple was actually an onion. <laughs> Wrapped in caramel with all the sprinkles, it looked beautiful. And he tore into that thing like nothing else. And then he got a big bite of onion and he fell on the floor and started convulsing. And I thought, oh no, I've just killed this kid. You know, like. <laughs> the point being, all the caramel and all the sprinkles on the outside mean nothing if we're onions on the inside. Jesus is in the business of turning onions into apples. We can dress up our our stuff with caramel and sprinkles, and all we have is a bunch of poo covered with caramel and sprinkles. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to take that garbage and I'm going to make it into a priceless treasure. I'm going to take that onion and I'm going to make it into an apple. I'm going to take all of your junk And I'm going to make something that you have never imagined so beautiful and so precious and so priceless, treasured by my heart. And then all the the change that I've worked in you is going to be worked out of you. And you will shine like stars. That's what Paul's been talking about in this letter. Our true asset is only Jesus. It's not our righteousness. If you want to know what it takes to be accepted by God, just know this. God has provided everything that we need. He doesn't require a perfect moral life. He doesn't require success by the world's standards or in the, by the church's standards. He doesn't require any of that. All that God requires to be accepted by him is surrendering your life to Christ. That's it. Does that mean God doesn't care about how we live? so that I could say the sinner's prayer and then go live however I want. No. (laughs) Paul's talked all through the first half of the letter about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? So we allow Christ to change us on the inside. We become acceptable to God by surrendering our lives to Christ. And then he begins to work that out of our lives in the way that we talk and the way that we act and the way that we treat other people. And the list goes on and on. But all that God requires is simply to receive Christ. That is our true asset. That is our true joy. Third thing that Paul has in this passage, true joy comes from our true assurance, the Holy Spirit. It comes from our true asset, only Jesus. And number three, true joy comes from our true aim, to be with God now and forever. Anything else is a distraction. Our true aim in life is to be with God now and forever. Verse 10 and 11, Paul says, my aim is to know him, meaning Christ, 
to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I thought the best way to explain what Paul's getting at in these two verses is to illustrate it, to show you this picture. It's deer season. Now, imagine you're hunting and you see a buck like that walk up to your decoy. I promise you, if you shoot the decoy, you will not go home with joy in your heart. (laughs) Right? Paul is talking about changing his target in life. Before he met Christ, the aim, the, the target Paul was aiming at was to advance his own standing, was to be as successful as he could possibly be, was to be as educated as he could possibly be, to be as wealthy as he could possibly be, to be as religious as he could possibly be, to be as zealous for God as he could possibly be, to do everything he could possibly do to make himself a better person so that God would be pleased with him. And then he met Jesus and he realized everything that he was shooting at in life was nothing but a fake. It wasn't real. Now, his new target in life is to be entangled with Christ. To know him, to experience the power of his resurrection. That's not just future, that's the resurrection power right now. To to share in his sufferings, to be like him in his death. He wants to be entangled up, intertwined with Christ. He wants to be with Jesus. That's his new target. That's his new aim in life. Our aim in life is not success. Our aim in life is not wealth. Our aim in life is not prosperity. Our aim in life is not the promotion that we've been wanting. Our aim in life is not, uh, uh, is not to be good, upstanding, moral people. Our aim in life isn't even a successful ministry. None of those things is bad. But if that's what we're targeting in life, we're going to go home with a decoy. Our aim in life is Jesus, is to be intertwined with him, is to be tangled up with him, is to be in his presence, is to be sitting at his feet, listening to his voice and doing what he says. It is to be connected with Christ. And what Paul is saying is, look, I want to experience the power of the resurrection now in my life right now. I want God's resurrect, the resurrection of Christ, I want it to, to resurrect me. I want all my bad habits and the things that pull me down and the things that I struggle with to be, uh, to be resurrected from the dead and pointed to Christ. I want to experience the power of the resurrection now so that I can sp- experience actual resurrection then. Right? I want to be with Christ now so that I can be with God forever then. I want the Holy Spirit to fill my life now so that I can be filled with the glory of God for eternity then. That is our aim. That is our joy in life. The question is, what are we aiming at? What are you aiming at? Are we aiming at the decoy or are we aiming at Christ? Because everything else is a hollow sham. And true joy comes from our true assurance, the Holy Spirit, nothing else matters. It comes from our true asset, only Jesus. Everything else is a liability. And it comes from our true aim, to be with God now and forever. Anything else is a distraction. If we will get these words from the Apostle Paul and be reminded of them, we will be able to rejoice 
in the Lord. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. We're going to close the service with communion. This is a great opportunity. Communion provides us a great opportunity to take stock. So I'm going to guide us through a little bit of listening prayer where we listen for the Holy Spirit to direct us. We're going to ask God uh, to give us that assurance. And I don't care if you've been coming to church for 50 years or more. I want you to take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to bear witness to your heart, to your spirit, that you are a child of God. Ask God to reassure you this morning. And then we're going to ask the Lord to show us where uh, our things that we've been considering assets are actually liabilities. What are the things that we've been clinging to that aren't Jesus? And we'll confess those to the Lord. And then finally we'll conclude by uh, asking God to show us what we've been aiming at in life. And to help us target Christ. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, inspiring through the Holy Spirit these words from the Apostle Paul. Reminding the Philippians 2,000 years ago, reminding us today. Holy Spirit, as Paul said, that you are the assurance that we belong to Christ. We just want to take a moment of quiet reflection and ask you to reassure our hearts that we belong to Jesus, to remind us how much you love us. Would you reassure our hearts, Holy Spirit? Thank you, Lord, for quickening our heartbeat, for the warmth that courses through us, the tingling feeling we get when we experience your presence and and know we belong to God. We are loved and accepted. Lord Jesus, I, I confess that there are things in my life that I cling to sometimes more than I cling to you. I try to measure my worth Um, in ways that aren't in alignment with you. I count things as assets that are in actuality liabilities. Would you bring to our hearts and minds through your spirit some of those assets that are actually liabilities in us? Thank you for bringing those things to mind, Lord. We confess them. We ask you would help us to put them in their proper place. They're probably not all bad things, but they're not God things. Help us to make you the only king in our lives. Lord, also, uh, I will acknowledge that sometimes I aim at the wrong target. I pursue things that aren't, you would you bring to our minds things in the last 
week or two that we have aimed at uh, that are the wrong target? We thank you for speaking to us, for bringing those thoughts to our mind. We confess those decoys to you. And now, Lord Jesus, we uh, take communion. We thank you for dying on the cross. Your obedience is what wins our acceptance. Your righteousness credited to us. So in taking this bread, which is a symbol of your body, broken on the cross for my sin, we accept the righteousness of Christ credited to us. We eat it now. And in drinking this juice, which is a symbol of your blood, Lord Jesus, we recognize that you are not only the source of joy, but you are also the source of life. And without your life in us, we have no life. So we receive this juice symbolizing your blood, your life lived in us. We drink it now. Thank you for being our great God and Savior and we will respond with worship in Jesus' name.